This morning's reading is taken from Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 26. This can be found on page 1171 in the Church Bibles. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that we can be together. We thank you for your kindness and mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray as we hear your word that you may submit it in our hearts so that we may live for you each and every day. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's wonderful to be here again. It's been a few years because of COVID and other things uh, since I've last been in the UK, but it's great to come and to be with Mike and Sarah and the children again. So uh, my wife sends her greetings. She'll be watching our service. Um, She couldn't, unfortunately, be with me, but it's great to be with you again. I've just recently come back from Africa, which you can see from my uh, Ugandan belt here. Um, I've been going backwards and forwards to Africa to teach clergy for around 30 years and I was again in Uganda just before I came over here. But it's great to be with you. I'm over here to help a friend with a church plant in Durham but uh, also doing some speaking in a few other places and hence I'm here. But one of the things I've been enjoying with being with the folk at Grace Church uh, Newton Hall over in Durham is that they've been 
really living out our passage that we've got for us this morning. And so it's a great joy to be able to bring that passage to you as we um, meet together. Friends, as I'm sure you're aware, freedom is a very current and all-consuming idea. We're told that we should be free to choose whatever will make us happy or satisfied or give us a feeling of being worthwhile. And so there's an intense drive to remove all restraints so we can be free to do whatever we want including being free to define the moral good by our own personal desires. That what's good for me will direct my behaviour, govern my lifestyle choices. Freedom has come to mean freedom to be selfish, freedom to prioritise our lives by the value of me first. Yet, of course, this view of freedom isn't new. As you've been working through the book of Galatians, you would have seen that idea creeping in to the lives of the Galatian churches. And so as the Apostle Paul writes to these churches, he uses very strong language to clearly show their error. You may recall these words from chapter 1. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And that strong language continues throughout his letter. Uh, There in chapter 1 and particularly in chapter 3. But of course that strong worded language comes to a bit of a climax at the beginning of chapter 5. You may recall from uh, last week. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And so, of course, that notion of freedom leads us in to the beginning of our passage for today. For you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So in this passage in Galatians 5, 13 to 26, Paul is seeking to explain why freedom from the law doesn't lead to satisfying selfish desires. And so he begins on the note of love. Look again at verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. As people come to Christ, they're set free from the law's demands, including the requirement of circumcision, which was so big in the Galatian churches, with the people coming and saying, you need to be fulfilling the Jewish law to be a true blue Christian. And so people are set free from the burden of seeking to be right with God through works of the law. Freed from trying to save themselves by obedience to the law, which of course no one can ever achieve due to our sin. And this freedom that we have comes because of Christ's death on the cross, where he redeems us from the curse of the law. And that's back there in chapter 3 and again in chapter 4. But Paul says this freedom mustn't become an opportunity to pursue selfish desires. To let the flesh, that is the old Adam nature, take charge again. 
Now, a question that arises is, well, how could that really happen, Paul? How could that really happen? You know, we're Christians. We're no longer in Adam. We're in Christ. Well, it's simply because the Galatians, as well as us, live in the overlap of the ages, the now and the not yet. Though we're a new creation in Christ, we still live in the present evil age, which Paul has already referred to. And as Christians in the present evil age, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Yes, indeed, we do. And we certainly experience in part both the freedom of the new creation and the joys of obeying God. Yet we still live in a body not yet freed from the presence of sin. Thus it's essential to draw on God's strength to be able to resist our selfish desires. So Paul directs Christians to where true joy is to be found, where true freedom is to be found, in loving service of others, as he says in verse 13. The freedom then is found in what we were designed to do. I like watching the railway programs by Michael Portillo and I've loved seeing all the different parts of the UK in the various uh, train shows he's delivered. But could you just imagine his shows if the train was not on the tracks for trying to go through the paddock? It wouldn't get anywhere. True freedom is doing what we are designed for. Trains are meant to run on tracks. That's where they get places. So for us, true freedom is found in doing that which pleases God. And Paul says here, that is loving service of others. Of course, when we think about the world around us, they can see this sort of freedom as really being anything but freedom. But because it is God's word, we know that the world is wrong. Christians are to uphold love as true freedom. Because being human is loving. God is love, as the Apostle John tells us. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to die for us. We are created in the image of God, in the image of God who is love. The love between the Father, Son and the Spirit. And so right throughout the scriptures... Love is prominent in the way we are to relate to one another. Leviticus tells us we are to love each other as we love our neighbours like ourselves. And of course Jesus says in the upper room, by your love for one another will the world know that you are my disciples. So part of the essence of being human is loving And Paul states here also that as we do that, as we lovingly serve others, we fulfil the law, as verse 14 says. It's not that love sort of goes around the moral norms of the law, nor does love violate the law, but rather it transcends the law because it fulfils the law. And you see that in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? Where Jesus says, You have heard it said this, but I say to you this, because in him the law is fulfilled, 
the one who personifies love itself. It's loving service that will enable us to resist selfishness and consequently to find true joy in serving others. Friends, those who are free from the law and empowered by the Holy Spirit will live a life of love. And then in verse 15, Paul warns us of the very opposite to loving service, dissension and squabbling, the very things that tear the church apart, tear the very fabric of the church apart. And as that happens, it achieves the devil's aim. So freedom in Christ will reveal lives marked by a lack of anger when disagreeing with one another. Not always easy to do, is it? Or refraining from shouting to win arguments. Not always easy to do. Or resisting the desire to always prove ourselves right. You see, the Spirit liberates believers to restrain evil, but freedom doesn't give unlimited reign to evil desires or impulses. So the key question to ask is, the key question that love asks is, how can you or I serve one another? How can we build up others in a way shaped by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? I wonder how we're doing in that loving service. I wonder if that's the question we ask if we're married about our husbands or wives. Is it the question we ask with our children? Is it the question we ask as we meet together? How are we loving one another and building one another up? It's quite a lifestyle challenge, isn't it? something to really earnestly commit to God in prayer, that we may truly love one another. Then Paul goes on in verse 16 and following to clarify what it means to live as those who are called to freedom and loving service. He writes about how this godly lifestyle only becomes a reality through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify, that is, put into practice, the desires of the flesh. If then we walk by the Spirit, we'll overcome the desires of the flesh. But of course, this walking is meant to be a daily commitment. A daily obedience to God through his word. Friends, though we must choose to live by the Spirit, it's actually by the Spirit's empowering that we can do that. That we can live pleasing to our God. What an amazing and gracious God to both call us to something and then empower us to do it. But Paul goes on to warn about the spiritual battle facing Christians. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other 
to keep you from doing the things you want to. Verse 17. You see, believers aren't immune to the desires of the old Adam because we still hear their alluring and tempting call. And I'm sure you're aware of that in your own lives. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that, don't we? We know that struggle with those desires day in, day out. But of course, as Christians, there's a difference, isn't there? You see, we have the terrific privilege of the Holy Spirit living within us. We possess the promised gift of the age to come. And yet, the present evil age hasn't finally passed away. Hence, the flesh remains a reality along with its attractive desires. The desires we see in Scripture ever since Adam and Eve were in the garden. Remember how they were tempted? Did God really say? And it was a downward slide ever since. But the Spirit enables us to triumph over those desires and so choose to pursue righteousness and goodness. Here again, verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And what's Paul driving at here? I suggest simply this. Though Christians are engaged in a great conflict between the flesh and the spirit, there's a key factor to consider. For those who are led by the spirit have a power enabling victory over sin because they no longer live under the reign of the law. You see, Christians don't belong to the old era where law reigned. Since the new has come in Jesus Christ. So we're not under the curse of the law because of our sin, because of our rebellion to God. For we've been redeemed and now are people who live under grace. For when the time was right, Christ came to redeem those under the law so that we might be adopted as sons of God where we can cry, Abba, Father. Friends, freedom from the law means freedom from the reign of sin, not freedom to continue to sin. Hence, if the Galatians revert back to being under the law, then they'd unleash the power of sin in their church community. The answer to the tyranny of sin is the cross of Christ and the subsequent gift of the Spirit. And so when we get to verse 19, Paul then provides two contrasting lists, one outlining the works of the flesh, that is the sinful behaviour inherited from the old Adam, and the other, the fruit of the Spirit, the godly behaviour of the kingdom of God, of the new creation. But there's a deep chasm between the two. Though the nature of the works of the flesh are obvious as you read that list, a few comments may be helpful. You see, the flesh seeks to produce attitudes and actions marked by ungodliness, marked by behaviour that doesn't please God. 
And Paul, as he lists these works of the flesh, is essentially listing them in three different groupings. The first one being sexual sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Often in our world, they are seeking to be redefined to call evil good and sometimes good evil. And then there is a couple which I would like to call false worship sins, idolatry, sorcery, where we're trying to make God in our own image to control and manipulate God. And then the rest are really disharmony sins, things which tear us apart, strife and anger and selfish ambition and envy. And Paul's very serious when he lists these works of the flesh Look at verse 21. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says similar things in 1 Corinthians 6, doesn't he? If we habitually practice these sinful behaviours, then we place at jeopardy our eternal inheritance. For if we live controlled by the desires of the flesh then we'll face God's judgment. A judgment without a saviour. And what a terrifying thought that is. Friends, that's why our current debates about human sexuality are so significant. Because eternal salvation is at stake. So we must not compromise God's truth as we confront an ungodly world. We must not conform to the world's values. But Paul doesn't dwell on this warning, of course, for he quickly turns to the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. And what a contrast between the sinful vices on the one hand and the godly virtues on the other. Friends, the fruit of the Spirit aren't the product of the old Adam. They're not the product that comes out of our own human strength. Rather, they arise from the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. You may remember Paul's earlier words back in chapter 3 where he says, you Galatian believers hadn't received the Spirit through works of the law, but rather through hearing and believing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross and rose again. But at the same time, their hearing and believing the gospel is a work and activity of the Spirit, which in turn leads to God-pleasing lives. Yet the Spirit's presence in a Christian's life doesn't result in some let-go, let-God attitude. Because we're still called to stand firm, the beginning of chapter 5, Loving, loving serve others, 5.13. To keep watch with regard to temptation and to bear one another's burden as he begins in chapter 6. Friends, though we are to make every effort, it'll be God at work in us as that takes place. So that all praise belongs to him since God's spirit gives us the strength to live godly lives. The fruit of the Spirit 
challenges us, I suggest, at every level, both in our attitudes and our actions. For godly virtues are focused outwards, aren't they? We're to be characterised by things like patience. I'm very patient if I've got no one around me. But patience is exercised with others. Goodness, I'm very good when I'm by myself. I'm great company. But we can't exercise goodness without others. Or gentleness. You see, the fruit of the Spirit is focusing us outwards so that indeed we can serve others. Because the very first fruit of the Spirit in the list is love. See, Paul's already called us to love in verse 13. He's also warned us of the harmful effects of loveless relationships in verse 15. So perhaps as he begins the fruit of the Spirit with love, he's wanting us to define love as giving ourselves for others so they'll be encouraged and strengthened to give themselves more fully to God. Perhaps Paul also wants us to see love as the bond binding the fruit together. The bond drawing us back, of course, to Jesus, who perfectly displays all the Spirit's fruit in his life and ministry. And then in verse 23, Paul reminds his readers that it's the Spirit that produces the fruit, not legal demands. And then as the chapter closes in verses 24 and 20 through to 26, Paul, in a sense, is, is giving a bit of a summary as well as linking on into chapter 6, especially verse 26. So he says here that Christians have crucified the flesh, obviously drawing us back to earlier reference where when we come to Christ, we share in his work on the cross, implying we've crucified the flesh. And since we've been crucified with Christ, Paul earlier on declares back in chapter 2, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, being crucified with Christ means we're going to say no to the old life in Adam. No to the domination of the flesh. And it means saying yes to Christ. Yes to the Lordship of Christ. Yes to trusting him in all situations. Yes to obeying his word. Or as Paul puts it in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not poorly, but richly. It means overflowing with chocolate that is rich and dark and beautiful. Not that crummy white chocolate. <laughs> Letting the word of Christ dwell richly. And as a result, we belong to the new age of the Spirit. Yet, the death of the flesh doesn't mean believers are free from the tug 
of fleshly desires. Rather, the desires of the flesh no longer rule and reign over us, for the cross has dealt them a decisive blow. So those who walk by the Spirit, those who are led by the Spirit, can triumph over the desires of the flesh, even if it is imperfect and partial. And we have to do it time and time again. Friends, the battle with the world, the flesh and the devil will continue until our life's end or Jesus returns, whichever comes first. But we are to be encouraged, Paul's saying here, because the Spirit is at work in our lives. The Spirit is at work changing us from the inside out, conforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true image of God. In other words, we're being reshaped to be more human, back into the image of God. Hence, Galatians and all Christians will experience the miraculous activity of God, an activity enabling us to turn from the desires of the flesh and so display the fruit of the Spirit. As we keep in step with the Spirit, then we'll heed the warning of verse 26, a warning for Christians not to give in to arrogance and pride. Pride was there back in the garden as Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They thought they knew better than God. And that's been the case as we look through the Bible, isn't it? Or as the Proverbs put it, pride goes before a fall. Because once we let pride creep in, it's the thing which really leads to people being irritated by us or it leads to being envied. Walking by the Spirit will show itself as we serve one another in love. And isn't that, again, a challenge to our prayer life? Are we praying to love one another earnestly? How often is that prayer on our lips? But I guess when we read this passage, it's easy to feel like as if it's a cascading waterfall overwhelming us, as if we're being swallowed up in the flow of the water. Yet it is God's word to us today. May we take it to heart. May we take to heart the challenge of what it's like to live in true freedom, the freedom that comes in Christ. We've already been singing about that, isn't it? That it's only in Christ that all these things take place. And so as we think about a passage which calls us to freedom, it is a freedom centred in loving others, in loving service of others. It's a freedom that's empowered by the Spirit of God who comes to us. It's a freedom seen in turning from fleshly desires and growing in godly behaviour. Friends, this passage is a great challenge to us in our Christian lives 
and in our community life as a church here in this place. We need to pray that we do not use our freedom in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather to serve one another in love and let the Spirit guide and direct us into the virtues that speak of God. And he'll do that as we continue to submit to his word. Let the word of God dwell richly among us. Amen.